You cannot replicate the full spectrum of the sun. You never will. Humans cannot. Hello and welcome to This is Cannabis from X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. I'm your host, Lee Henderson, co-founder of Portland Craft Cannabis Company, Hi-Fi Farms. And with me in the studio today is my co-host, Emma Chasen, the founder of Eminent Consulting. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? What's going on? Uh, just uh, working a ton. Yes. <laughs> typical. Yes, I feel like that's the very only tired thing. Yeah. Yeah, we are. My dark circles are popping. You look fine. It's not, you don't Thank look you. tired. We just are. I just know we are. You are tired. Yes. yes. I am tired. Too. Yes. Yep. Definitely. Um, I uh, my children are out of school this week, and so busy. It's been busy. It's been, a, been a lot of that. Yeah. Been a lot of that. We had a sleepover last night, and uh, it was it went on a little bit too long. I bet. It was a little bit of drama. Really? Yeah. I mean, girls that age typically. You said, you said it, not me. Uh, yeah, I can say it. I'm a woman. I'm really excited about our guest. Today, I am really excited though. about our guest too. Our guest Jesse Long. What, what do you want to introduce Jesse? Yes, I would love to. So Jesse is uh, the sales manager for Green Source Gardens, mm-hmm. and I went to Green Source Gardens in September, right before their harvest, and it is a phenomenal farm. I had a chance to stay with Nick and Liz, who are the owners and the the growers of Green Source. Um, just their their mindset, their mission, their ethos is so fascinating, so humble so ecologically conscious um, and they they really produce some amazing stuff on this sloping hill that's full of serpentine like rock and mineral which is it makes it almost impossible to grow I mean they were telling us stories that when they purchased this property and and we're talking to people about the plans for it before like you are crazy mm-hmm. like there is no way that you will ever get this land to to produce uh, a not only like vegetables but also cannabis and they have done it like it's amazing how they have really like tapped into their ecosystem um and just supported uh it so that now it's it's flourishing uh and so i'm i'm super excited to have jesse in who's their sales manager to kind of talk more about uh their farm mission cool Yeah. yeah all right well so um green source gardens jesse long let's go to the conversation now Our guest today is Jesse Long, Sales and Operations Coordinator for Greensource Gardens, a sun-grown regenerative family farm located in Southern Oregon. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming in. It's a lot of fun to be here. Awesome. So lots to get to today. I'm really excited about our conversation. I wanted to first ask you to please briefly tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, about your experience in the cannabis industry. Absolutely. Um, So first and foremost, growing up in Oregon, it's always kind of been around and a relatively uh, low stress, low impact thing to experiment with. And so I I start this all as a consumer, especially ramping up in college and kind of that life. And then I entered the formal cannabis industry uh, as a bud tender in the medical days uh, in Bend, Oregon at what was then called Bloomwell is now called right. Substance Cannabis Market. Yep. Mm. And um, Jeremy I, quit. Right? Jeremy quit, yeah. absolutely. Shout out to him. I'll be seeing them next week doing a couple of vendor days at my old shop. So that'll be a nice full circle. Oh, that's fun. Um, yep. Very fun. Um, and that's where I was introduced to Green Source Gardens initially, selling them in the end of the medical era, transitioning into the uh, rec sales era. I spent some time at another farm doing a post-harvest kind of preparation for the sales guy there. Um, and then I spent a little 
weird period in Puerto Rico and Arkansas um, doing operations management at an aeroponics startup. And then after that, about a year ago now, we reached out to Nick and Liz at GreenSource and had perfect timing as this whole market was doing a weird thing. And they uh, were feeling like maybe they needed a little extra help. So I've been at GreenSource for about a year now. Right on. Awesome. Okay, so um, GreenSource Gardens. Mm -hmm. Right off the bat, I want to ask you on your website, it says that you guys practice, uh, quote, ecologically integrated cultivation. Is that a term of art that is sort of uh, commonly used in the in the industry, or is it something more akin to a, like a philosophy that you guys devised? I would say it's out there in broad terms. I don't think it's especially specific to us, um, but it's part of the evolution of finding the terms that speak to the totality of the situation a lot of these terms that we're going to be discussing you start to hone in on a specific element of it and you lose the entire picture so um, like ecodynamic is something um, that liz and nick played around with like three years ago as a term and is something you'll see in some of our literature it's that a great is, term mm-hmm. i a, mean ecodynamic and both that and the ecologically integrate yeah. and i'd say it's, it's a little integrated. more specific to us but i wouldn't um ever claim like ownership over this as like a philosophy that's right. only us Right. Mm. So let's get into the weeds, so to speak, about the kind of different cultivation methods that Green Source Gardens employs. Uh, you guys are full-term, sun-grown, and polyculturalist, influenced, and I'm, I'm reading this some mm-hmm, of these mm-hmm, off of mm-hmm, your website, mm-hmm. influenced, quote, but not limited to the growing styles dictated by biodynamics, permaculture, hugel culture, and indigenous agriculture. I want to ask you to break down for our audience kind of what all that means, and I can give them to you again sort of like, <laughs> if, you know, in bullet, bullet form if you need me to. Absolutely. Uh, I'll grab a bunch of those that I'm remembering off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, biodynamic is a term that points a lot more to the, um, like, uh, I think it's Rudolf Steiner and the more, like, esoteric cosmic kind of connection. So a lot of that in more practical terms is, like, planning to the lunar calendar right. and things mm. of that nature. Uh, permaculture is permanent agriculture. Um, a lot of those are, you know, l- having an agricultural system that is always kind of there and rooted and isn't, like, necessarily being tilled up and not being used for production as specifically... Hugel culture is German for hill culture, and that kind of speaks to a specific style of burying carbon in the form of tree limbs and um, slower breakdown situations like that in the soil and layering um, more you know, carbon layers that will break down quicker over the top of that and doing that on contour in a way where it's going to capture kind of water flow and energy flows um, and take advantage of the hill. Um, think a lot of terraces and some of those older style of agriculture there. Full-term sun-grown? Oh, polyculturalist? The, the basic ones, absolutely. Yeah. So, so basically that points to not monocropping in the polyculture influence. So we, mm-hmm. we don't have pests or weeds in our garden um, in the sense that we don't identify anything as a problem. As such, right. No, everything has an ecological niche, an ecological role, and if your system is balanced, it will have its niche and it'll fulfill that niche and it won't take over and it won't dominate. Um, And uh, a lot of that pest control and weed management happens because you're doing a monoculture and that attracts a certain 
a slew of things to balance that back out again. And because you're fixated upon this monoculture for production, you think all that's bad. Right. Um, and then the full term sun grown is just that we don't do any sort of light manipulation. So we don't pull tarps into a light depth. We don't have any supplemental lights. Um, we believe fully in integrating with the natural cycles of uh, the seasons and the sun and all of this style of agriculture is is about recognizing and observing the energy that's already out there and flowing and plugging yourself into it in a way to capture that with having to generate extra or, or control it and such. And I want to take it a couple spe- steps back to uh, monocrop mm-hmm. culture and let our audience know, if they didn't, that that's really how the United States agricultural system operates, e- right? Even broader than us, really. That's mm-hmm. how like conventional agriculture since World War II operates. And in contrast to more you know, indigenous styles of agriculture, um, which are which about, are what? Yeah. you know, it's just about using what grows there naturally and and having that awareness of the resources that exist and not saying i want strawberries always i should get that or even with cannabis like i grow in an area where cannabis doesn't grow but i need my cannabis so i'm going to do whatever i have to do to make sure that happens uh, whatever light control or anything like that i have to do um and then obviously in a world of um, capitalism where you get paid for what you're doing, uh, that just gets reinforced and the, the fear of failure really starts to make people tighten up and really control more and more and more. Mm. Yeah, mono cropping is partly a thing because it's really easy to harvest and manage and yeah. you can have a tractor and you can scythe it and you can systematize it, yeah. you can scale it up. Scale it up. Um, and that's exactly. the biggest, biggest one there is is the scale of everything when you're talking about indigenous and more um, classic agriculture or earth relationships it's a smaller scale family situation mm. and maybe there is um, some surplus because they're plugged in in such a way that like oh my god like I, I, we have so many potatoes at the farm for instance we could theoretically trade those to other people for what they have a lot of and that you know your surplus can flow in that way but smaller scale allows you to allow everything to flourish and then you can walk through your garden and it's really more of a natural space than like a gridded out grow Um, and that's something that you can really see when you look at pictures of green source gardens or any of that stuff it's that there's plants everywhere and it's not really clean and it's not very easy to harvest we go in there by foot we don't drive any machines into the zone so that's it it's not as easy to scale up and just make things happen but um it is healthier and more natural and more plugged in and produces a higher quality um crop can you talk about that a little bit about um kind of the the downsides of monocrop culture because it's good for scale it's it's good for large quantities of one crop but what's the downside from the ecological perspective um from the kind of earth perspective there 100 percent. so you know alluding back to the pest and weed control component like all of these herbicide pesticides all of those are tools used to continue to enforce your monocrop a monocrop is not natural diversity is the natural way of the world when you let go of control and things blend together and flow together you've got that component another component is when you talk about uh, soil infertility or pulling nutrients or having to re-amend things like a lot of that is a component of an imbalanced 
growth ecosystem where you're just growing one thing, you're usually pushing multiple harvests out of that one thing, and you're taking all of that one thing from the soil, and so nothing's returning to the soil in that situation because it is all this mono, which all has this value, which you're harvesting all of, as opposed to the more polyculture thing where like we're not harvesting most of the things that grow on the garden. We're harvesting a thing, the flower of the cannabis plant and the seeds. Um, it's like the lowest amount of carbon, of literal material we can take from the garden and still pay to be there in a capitalist society. I think that covers most of kind of this, the main problems with the monocropping. It bleeds into a lot of other things we're going to talk about, so I'm trying not to go too far down the rabbit yeah, hole. Totally but, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, the, the way I understand it, and just probably to restate what you just mm. said, is it just eventually just sort of strips all the all the, all the the health out of the land that you're doing it on when you're sort of setting, resetting, you know, time and time again, and you've, and you've sort of had, you start with a stripped away piece of land, you know, like a blank canvas, and then you can just continue to do, presumably it's going to be mm. corn, right? I mean, what do we grow lots of in this right. country, right? Well, I just drove up from the farm uh, yesterday and went through the Willamette Valley. And I, you know, I have family in Eugene. I spend a lot of time in Eugene. I, I love Oregon. But that stretch of Oregon from Eugene to Portland is where we have done the most monocropping and the most destruction of what's naturally there. Mm -hmm. And the contrast to that are the forests and the mountains. And all you have to do is look at the places where we haven't, uh, use it quite as much now that you've yeah. obviously got logging problems in some of those forests and those get replanted as monocrops there So you can you can have bad quote-unquote unhealthy forests Because you've planted all one type of tree as well there and so just in general We're big believers in diversity on all its fronts and that mm -hmm. the only way to have a thriving network of anything is to have a bunch of diverse nodes in that network that all contribute to a more complex and balanced picture and, and as far as my understanding of y'all's y'all's land or y'all's space is that it goes beyond sort of hills and and grass and soil like you guys as far as poly, poly culturalism like you guys have a bunch of animals and you know it's it's absolutely so it's it's more than just the plant diversity it's the life diversity in totality from fungal to animal and they all interrelate and we are gaining more scientific literature and language about the rhizome and about all these different things that validate that. But at its core, these are principles that have been around for a long sure, time. Sure, sure. It's very poo. primal. It, it very steaming, much so. You know. Like, all you have to do is really, like, sit in a place and observe and be a part of a natural system to see that. And so, yeah, you, we have uh, a, a bunch of goat and a donkey and a llama and, and the animals and, and their role, i.e. grazing, uh, their manure, it's super valuable resources, right. yeah. part of how you establish fertility and um, square the circle between these principles, these ecological principles, and the reality of uh, the economic demands when you enter into a recreational regulated market and, and, and play this role. Totally yeah, I mean, it's, I sort of see you guys in many ways as sort of like almost a pre-agricultural revolution sort of enterprise in mm -hmm. a cool way like you know like in a in a way that's that's very modern but at the same time has a lot of these sort of um uh a lot of a lot of really almost seemingly primal uh and very very old school um principles very much and, and it, it feels to me like there is an appetite for that out there totally there's a societal or at least a generational from my perspective and the people i talk to recognition that 
things aren't going well. Right. Um, no. that, 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 that this progression, this system that we've been handed, we don't believe in it really anymore. And so we, we've got some big choices to make. And that's where being humble as a society and looking at the other potential frameworks that we can make reality is important. And that's where the indigenous communities that have been carrying on these traditions uh, parallel to these uh, more conventional agricultural traditions since World War II are really important. And we need to to honor them and, and look at those lessons and realize that just because we figured out this formula for nitrogen and nitrogen fixing that basically was born out of bomb technology and it was how Germany rebooted itself post-war and it, it theoretically had its purpose, but it was out of a place of fear and desperation and it it produces a bunch of stuff a bunch of right. veggies can be produced this way there's no doubt you can produce biomass but we're learning that everything accumulates information from where it was grown and cultivated cannabis is an extreme example of that because it affects your consciousness in a striking way and you can really pick up on that but it's way more than just uh, the nutritional facts on your food it it, it is transmitting information to you from where it was grown it, it, it gathered all that up and and that sounds very esoteric energy but when you talk to somebody in the language of epigenetics and you talk about how like oh all these genetic codes get flipped on and off by the environment and you're consuming the end result of that process then people who have a more modern scientific mindset start to say oh yeah well clearly that matters of course this is information i'm taking into my body that will now flip my own epigenetic markers and it is more than just how much sugar or nitrogen or protein or any of these factors like the more we dive in science the more variables we see and the more gray and nuanced picture gets yes and that's so exciting to me coming mm -hmm. from a science background to really be able in the future hopefully to evaluate the the kind of metaphysics of it all, specifically with cannabis, because it does uh, influence our our consciousness, and so I always say that it is incredibly important about the environment that it was grown in. I mean, look at a child, right? Mm -hmm. A child will will grow up to be a different kind of human dependent on the environment that it grows up in, and so that's the same with any living organism to me. And I completely agree with what you said about kind of inheriting this broken system that's also not sustainable, right? In this Clearly. age where like we are having- Where the bees are dying and exactly. a third of the fish in the ocean are gonna be extinct exactly. in 50 years, yeah. Yep, Sorry. exactly. I'm yelling at, yelling at you. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true and it's, <clears throat> it's frustrating and it's clearly not working. And so to be able to kind of look back at the folk models that we do yeah. have, that the indigenous people have been doing forever, um, it, it makes way more sense than what we have right mm -hmm. now. Now, it, you know, counterpoint to that ish is like we're you guys are very lucky to be where you are, which, again, is in southern Oregon. And where exactly in southern Oregon? So uh, I, neglect, I neglected to ask you that. hundred percent. In your intro, yeah. <laughs> we get out of the ski sometimes. Yeah. Um, so we're in Wolf Creek, so it's about uh, four hours south of Portland along I-5, okay. um, essentially, uh, north of Grants Pass. Um, so it's basically like the northernmost tip of like the general kind of Emerald triangle yep. kind of right, down right, to right. Humboldt region. We have the advantage of having a lot more water in the upper watershed where we are, as opposed to some of the other people who share our climate, kind of more broadly speaking. But you're right, we are we're in the right space now. Right. Now the counter counterpoint would be, you know, Nick and Liz picked that space specifically, and so. Uh, 
um, it's if you're growing anything commercially, you should grow it in the space it wants to be grown for the least amount of energy if you want to be able to practice these principles. And I think it's really important that we start to look at the entire system. And that's the sort of science I'm a big believer in is systemic science and looking at everything and not just looking at this lab formula that applies in a very sterile setting because life isn't sterile. Everything is interrelated. And so, yeah, like ideally we would grow a bunch of cannabis in Oregon, which we're doing, and we would ship it to places where it doesn't grow very well. Now, clearly I know there is a political reason why that's not possible. I know that if you're in Michigan right now, if you're in Oklahoma right now, if you're in Puerto Rico right now, if you're in all these places right now, you don't have that option and you need your cannabis. And I totally get you, and I know what I'm saying can sound completely unrealistic and condescending mm-hmm. in a certain right. way. Um, and so I, I recognize the reality we live in is not the future we're building towards and it's important to say that we are we are not now where we will be in a year in five years we are not fully regenerative really we have principles we believe in and those aren't changing but the details absolutely change and i i've seen crazy evolution in the year i've been at green source and i know um that will continue can we bring uh, carbon, things like carbon sequestration and watershed management, which are also sort of, um, I don't know, principles or values that we talked about and I know that are sort of part of y'all's story mm-hmm. into this conversation. And can we talk about what they are and sort of how they fit into the kind of what we're all talking about here? The I would love to. Yeah. So a lot of the issue with conventional agriculture has to do with tilling. I don't want to you know bring in no-till too early per se, but right. you're not putting carbon into the soil and letting it stay there and develop. And so so right now there's a lot of carbon being released into the air as a greenhouse gas. One of the ways you can help sequester that is to just heap and keep your carbon on condor. That's a phrase we find ourselves saying a lot lately, but uh, that's basically what the Hugel culture style is, is you're taking carbon and you're letting it go back into the earth and then you are... Uh, perennializing root systems and allowing more water penetration. So there are these big concepts of basically managing water flow and managing carbon. What it really boils down to is just understanding where the water flows of land are, putting carbon, i.e. mulch and compost and manure in those areas, letting water filtrate into that. And then if there's roots there, it penetrates into the earth and continual layers of soil get built more carbon goes into the earth instead of out into the air more plants get grown which all helps this whole process so watershed management carbon sequestration it all has to do with letting the system reset itself and letting the variety of things the polyculture you've set up all the roots everything stay there and let the system kind of work in. in tandem or watch the flow chart kind of do its thing I'd imagine exactly. that's what it sounds like to me 100% I want to be super clear listening audience at home I have no idea about grow, how to grow cannabis despite mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, but I, I mean that's not true I mean I know a little bit about it but mm-hmm. I've mostly just observed it and I picked Absolutely. up a bunch, of, a bunch of things kind of osmotically but but that's that's right right you, you guys sort of set this all up and then let it go in a way right very much so and it's a way I think about it is with any system the more you're having to interact early, the more you've made this role for yourself, 
the more you will continue to be needed. And so what you've got to do is let the system kind of reset to zero to some degree, see what that equilibrium point is, and then introduce your influence in a very small way once you understand where the equilibrium points are. Um, and so that involves things like the full-term sun-grown. Um, there are roots and plants in the ground year-round, and because those roots are in the ground, the water we get in the winter penetrates into the earth and is available in this big carbon sponge in the summer when it all dries out. If you're pushing and doing multiple harvests or if you come in and classic black market cannabis uh, cultivation is you go into a forest, you clear cut that chunk of forest, you put it into smart pots in a grid, um, and you grow your cannabis real quick and get out of there. And then you've destroyed the root system in that area and then the water comes. It washes away everything because it doesn't penetrate. It just takes all these nutrients and it brings it down into the lower watershed. And then you've got all these weird algae fungal blooms happening in your waters and the valleys in the more classic agricultural areas. And now our oceans are being affected. And so that's part of being where we are in the mountains and the upper watershed. We're the first opportunity to capture a lot of the snow and mountain water, let it penetrate. And in addition to storing it in that carbon sponge, the life systems clean it, and they keep it clean. And all of these plants are helping it penetrate and keeping it clean and then releasing it in a slower, more manageable flow in the dry season. So you're balancing out extremes. And a lot of these extreme right. weather patterns and extreme climate disasters happen because this isn't happening, because right. all this water is immediately running You've out. You've taken away the element of like the organic symbiosis, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Or whatever it is. I'm sure that may, that may not be no. the correct terminology, but then, yeah, and then you have a water, uh, yeah. then you have a mudslide, right? And, and essentially what a plant is, is the magic of that water combining with the sun, which is always hitting us, into this like physical thing that's like, it's got a ton of water in there that's now being held up in that system, and then it's going to biologically break down, and it's infused its own essence into what was just water and sun. And now it's this whole, it's soil. It's everything that we need to grow everything else. And if you don't allow that to happen, you've just got water flowing over your uh, soil and taking all the nutrients into places where it's not ready for it yet. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting close to a break. I Mm -hmm. wanted to ask you one more thing. We talked a lot about the sun, but I feel like going back to to biodynamics, Mm -hmm. can you talk to us a little bit more about that, why what biodynamics is and and why the, the the like the lunar cycle is is I've never I've never fully understood that. I'm not challenging it, but no, I no, just no. don't I don't get it. No, 100%. It's it's one of the things I'm still getting my head around most. So, I am not the grower, but I am very interested. I'm still in my observation phase, right. in my apprentice phase more or less. But I know the waxing and the waning moons have heavy impact in the community of growers that we affiliate with in when things get planted out. Um, And I am a terrible representative right now because I always blank a little bit on the waxing versus the waning on exactly what that denotes. Biodynamics in general can get some sideways glances because the most famous iteration of it is like the cow dung in the horn and burying that is um, a part of biodynamics. And we don't do that in a literal sense. A a lot of these um, systems get fetishized isn't like the right word exactly, but people really fixate on certain components of that. And so like this is also biodynamics. Venerated sort of. Yeah. 
Yeah. And like crystals and stuff like that are a component of biodynamics and all the like energy resonance. That's where you lose me. By the exactly. Way, but, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and like we don't <laughs> like we don't really put that out. Like like Nick says, Earth is a crystal. Right. Um, like we have bones in our compost manure. Like we have a, like we are much less formally systematic in these things. We we ultimately believe in connecting our production space to nature and having that grid be difficult to discern the difference of there. And so in that pursuit, um, the parts of biodynamics we affiliate with is that clearly the sun is the most obvious example of the cosmos affecting our garden, but all these other suns, i.e. stars, have some sort of influence. And what that influence is is difficult to discern fully and that we would never like... I could see gravity being a pretty good. All you have you to know, do, right. I mean, yeah, you talk about that that hill, that hill Hugo culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like you're really leveraging gravity at the end of the day. Oh, there, and, we don't in have a lot pumps. Ways. All of our water so, is gravity fed. Where does where does gravity come from? Right, exactly. I mean, that's right. Yes. Am I? Yeah. yeah, no, and I I like kind of your take on biodynamics because to me, like using the crystals and and doing more of like the ritual uh, type things, uh, which isn't bad necessarily no no judgment from me there but it is like exercising more control right whereas your whole philosophy at green source is leaning into the entropy of the universe the universe operates in a chaotic diverse model and Mm. so it's more just like giving up that control and letting it do its thing where i mean to doing crystals and other kind of ritualistic interventions to me is another way for humans to kind of like exercise that's greater the, control. That's more the spirituality of it to me in a, in a the sense. Woo-woo. And I don't, yeah. the woo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and like in a similar vein, like uh, KNF or Korean natural farming is something that we don't really practice in the formal sense. But for those um, listeners, that's a lot of the ferment teas and a lot of that, taking wild crafted you know horsetail and fermenting that with molasses and using that as a top dressing or a foliar spray like that's a whole um community of growers that we have a lot in common with but fermentation happens in the mulch layer in the soil naturally if you just have that set up the right way so once again it's a lot of extra control and formulas to get all these different ferments and all these different preparations which are awesome they're sourced great in most situations but it's an extra expenditure of energy and control, which we don't believe is truly necessary. It's important to recognize the valid components of all these different schools of thought, but it, you just can't get too dogmatic and you can't think you know more than the basics, basically. And a lot of these things lend themselves to I'm an expert grower now. I've perfected my biodynamic preparations. I've perfected my Korean natural farming preparations. And like you said, like let it flow. And the tricky balance is there's not no role for people. Like we have an ecological niche. Mm -hmm. We can be healthy earth stewards. For instance, the south-facing hillside with lots of sun exposure would grow the cannabis wouldn't naturally have a bunch of carbon on it. It would be an area where the water sheds it down. And so what we can do is we can see that and we can keep and keep carbon on that contour and we can turn that into a production space by taking the manure from the bottom of the hill where the animals are and moving it up the hill in wheelbarrows. Um, And that is a healthy, low-impact role to supplement what's already flowing over that hillside. Um, or like in forest management, there is a role for some basic thinning, putting carbon into the grid. Like we have a role and part of why people get 
so bummed out is is we think we're a scourge on the earth we are really depressed and anxious about how we interface with the natural system and there's a lot of people who think earth will be better off without us and this version of us sure but there's a version of us that adds to the health and vitality of the systems around us right Mm. you're it's almost yeah seems like in some cases you're sort of a counter to industry yeah i mean we Place in a, in a macro e- we, we place industry. ecological principles above economic. We can't ignore the economic, well said, yeah. but but ecological principles dictate our decision making. Um, and part of why I am where I am working for Nick and Liz is because uh, they made an impact on me early. And even though I kind of had a parallel journey working for some other things in cannabis, I could always tell they were being genuine and transparent and that that these principles were pretty basic but were pretty obviously true and i desperately as a human being as an oregonian as a cannabis consumer want this to be the reality of cannabis cultivation and cultivation more broadly and i i i see it working on this scale in this place and i want people to do it and yeah. take everything that we're doing like we're very transparent what we're doing we, we don't really believe in the proprietary things because the the mission is to have people see this as successful and oh my goodness they can somehow survive in the most crazy saturated competitive cannabis marketplace that's probably ever existed on the planet ever right or at least to our awareness in this iteration of ever today and it's working yeah. and it's 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 working and you're paying the bills and you're not having to sell out and you don't even care about money first and foremost. And so that's where the economic factors in for us is it's a proof of concept. If we can win right. an economic yeah. while having it being our second priority, we can get people who don't care about the that's ecological yeah. To, yeah. to care. And it's important. It that's that's why like I'm I'm the least salesy salesperson you will meet. And it was the same thing when I was a bud tender. It's like I didn't really care about the sale. I cared about people and what they are looking for and I, I truly believe that I could help them find the thing that will bring them health and happiness. And makes I, me I think, think of a is. quote we need to go to break but that makes mm-hmm. me think of a, one of my favorite quotes uh, from Patty Smith which is uh, make your interactions with people transformational not just transactional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. and uh, we need to go to a break but I, I, I really you know I think what you guys are doing is, is, is super not only like super interesting but super great Mm -hmm. so let's go to a break and then we're going to come back and talk more about it you're listening to this is cannabis on x-ray this is cannabis is brought to you by the craft cannabis alliance the craft cannabis alliance is a network of values-driven oregon-owned companies committed to defining supporting and celebrating authentic craft cannabis and building an industry dedicated to people place planet and plant The Alliance is leading the fight for interstate commerce in legal cannabis through the One Fix campaign. Export is the centerpiece of a successful Oregon industry that will support hundreds of farms and dozens of companies, providing world-class artisan products to legal markets and cannabis lovers everywhere. 
All right, and we are back. If you were just joining us, you were listening to This is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. My name is Lee Henderson, and with me in the studio is my co-host, Emma Chasen, and our guest today is Jesse Long, uh, the Sales and Operations Coordinator for Green Source Gardens, a sun-grown, regenerative family farm located in southern Oregon. Jesse, thank you for staying with us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm, I'm very curious about, um, you know, you guys have a super interesting, you know, almost sort of 19th century model of of produ- cannabis cannabis or just just agriculture it doesn't have to be cannabis production would you mm-hmm. agree with that I mean I, I hope that doesn't does I would, that seem right to you I, I would say potentially even older even than older that. Sure, but yeah sure. no it, it's you very guys are basically counter. like Tom Hanks and Castaway you know what I mean like <laughs> living on that island uh, mm-hmm. and having to use the coconuts as as uh, as you know, I'm just kidding I'm sorry no no, no 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 you're totally good yeah yeah I can take uh, it but so that but that that led me to want to want to ask you about sort of the end res- the end product you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm, like the mm-hmm. end result and and um, how you you know what sort of have you had difficulties with things like consistency? Have you had difficult, you know, as far as the the chemotype of the products and like, and, and that sort of thing, you know, as far as as far as if you if you're taking the lens of cannabis as medicine, how that all kind of works together, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. There's definitely some theoretical friction between uh, the ecological importance we place on genetic diversity and the economic demands of consistency, and so uh, I don't interface that much with some of the larger chains who want a very consistent 20 pounds of a very specific thing right uh the test at 28 percent 100 percent so um we joke sometimes that the only thing that's consistent is our dankness um because <laughs> um, <laughs> Love it, dude. that's such All a right. good tagline yeah, it's good yeah. uh, everything we grow is from seed which is unusual and so for the people who don't right can you talk about that 100 percent um most people um, grow a lot from clones for this consistency reason we just talked about. And a clone is essentially a cutting from a plant, um, often referred to a mother, which is kept in uh, like a constant vegetative light cycle. Yeah, lights on and 24 hours a day. So people keep their mother alive the for like 20 standard. years, 10 years, yeah. and there's this whole treasured thing, and people lose their mothers, and this whole genetic lineage is lost forever. And mm-hmm. For many reasons, we don't believe in that. First of all, we would never use lights. And so that to immediately takes us out of having mothers forever. Right. But even more than that, part of partnering with ecology is allowing nature to be nature. And part of that is breeding and genetics and all of that. So any batch of cannabis from Green Source Gardens has a more diverse range of phenotypes expressed in it than you're going to see in a lot of different places because every single plant was grown from a seed. So everything is genetically related. Everything is similar in a way. You can tell everything is family, but everything's a little bit different. And so depending on what seed stock we're using, there'll be more or less consistency, which has been fun because we just started selling our seeds to dispensaries this year as well. And so we will price differently based off of what sort of seed stock and how consistency it is, i.e. our pinkleberry right now is a fifth generation in red line. So it took five growing seasons of selecting for the traits that we're looking for to create a generally more consistent thing, but we're still growing completely from seed. So there is still phenotypical diversity within that consistency, as opposed to the coyote goo seeds we just started selling, what's called a polyhybrid so both of the parents were crosses this is the first generation cross of that essentially 
that polyhybrid is going to have um, a, a, a wider range of phenotypes and, and smells and noses and all that fun stuff, but it's not like they're completely different. It's not like there's a tangy over here and a chem dog over there. Everything is family. They're just slightly different facets of that same family. So, you know, circling kind of background to the consistency issue, um, we're big believers, me as a human being, as, as, as a medical bud tender in the full spectrum medicine. So I think often people have been trained to look for this consistency and repeatability from the pharmaceutical framework that we have grown up in and been given. And I don't think it's frankly even accurate in pharmaceuticals. I think it's an overblown component of it. And my mom's a nurse and like people gain tolerances and have their medications changed. Like doctors don't understand the medications on the same level that they're saying they do. And because there is this overhyped version of what we should expect from our medicine that's filtered in the cannabis in a certain way. I uh, consume a lot of our cannabis and I haven't really noticed tolerance formation, for instance. And so I, I know a lot of people when they smoke on a specific strain um, from a more conventional uh, cannabis cultivation that's hitting the same note and it's a very distinct note and it's very easy to, to define and distinguish. They've got to keep switching it up because they form the strain-specific tolerance. And I notice that not happening when I'm consuming green source garden flower. And I think part of that is there is this diversity of expression that's wiggling around a little bit. It's a little bit harder for your body to hone in on that. I think when you read a lot of the terpene and cannabinoid-specific information, and I've read a lot of it, it's really hard to spin that into a meaningful story. Um, you know, I've seen terpene tests for every flower um, we sold from this year's harvest, last year's harvest, at previous stops. It's difficult for me to look at a test result and predict what it's going to smell like still with a decent amount of experience. Or how it's going to necessarily affect someone uh, due to their own personal physiology. Or 100%. Imagine, right? and, and part of this story about consistency neglects the factors outside of the chemical compounds of the substance you are consuming. So your mindset, your setting, be that your social setting, your environmental setting, all of these things factor into your experience with cannabis or with anything. So um, if you, you smoke the same exact joint of the same exact flower by yourself in your room versus smoking it in a, a setting with new people or um, like when I do the cultivar reviews on our podcast, it's amazing the different effect and just like trying to keep your train of thought and communicate and be articulate. Like it's different. It's the same exact flower. And right. so I, I just encourage people to... Try to let go a little bit of looking for that. And it's really tough to tell somebody with medical needs. And, and, and as a bud tender, I, I remember being really affected by uh, this gentleman who came in who was a combat vet. And he had PTSD, but he was looking for a mood elevator. But he couldn't get paranoid or hypervigilant because then right. it would be bad for his family around him. And... and um, like, just having that responsibility for, like, oh, man, like, I, I want to give this guy this good experience, but I can't trigger him into this this extra zone. Like, I, I understand where this need's coming from, and it's it's important. I, I would say if it's coming from a good cultivation place, if it's, if it's coming from uh, a healthy place, it's going to have 
those healthy impacts, but it might not be really linearly predictable. Um, and I, I would just say in general, I think that's something we look for more than it actually exists. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also something that humans just want always mm-hmm. is that consistency and predictability. And especially when we relate it to medicine, which one, we have all been conditioned in the allopathic pharmaceutical model of you take a pill, you get a predicted range of side effects, you take another pill to take care of these side effects, so on and so forth. But even then, I mean, you bring up a great point that I may respond to, let's say, an opioid way differently than somebody else would respond to an opioid. Um and, and so nothing is really predictable. There is always that fallacy. Um, and yet it is a, there is a level of responsibility when you are dealing with these, these medicinal ailments that are really affecting people's lives where they do want that predictability and consistency. And it's, it's kind of hard to, to encourage them or explain to them that really it takes a little bit of experimentation. It takes a little bit of leaning into the process. And there are certain ways, right, that we can mitigate an uncomfortable reaction like microdosing and, and really being aware of your situation and making sure you're surrounded by people you love in a comfortable space, et cetera. But it's still, it's still a vulnerable process for people. I also want to bring up that growing from seed, you have a stronger plant, Right. Mm -hmm. So when you're taking a clone, first of all, there is a level of mutation that happens at that level. Um, And and it is so inbred that it has less fungal resistance. It has less mold resistance. There's also value in like planting a seed into the ground and then having that seed as soon as it's like popped open, it is already taking in from its environment. Whereas if you had a plant that you took a cutting from that was in a very sterilized environment with uh, with lights and all that, and then you plopped it into the ground, that's shocking for that organism. And it has to adjust in that way. Um, so one, it, it is stronger from an actual like cultivation standpoint, you're producing stronger plants. And then also you do get greater diversity in the secondary compounds that come up in your matrix because you you have stronger genetics also because you have the natural sun since you're growing outdoors. Can you explain why that's important, the secondary compounds? Yeah, so so I'm a big believer in the entourage or now called ensemble effect where the, the true medicinal value and potential of cannabis lies in the synergistic relationships among its constituents and its matrix, meaning that the cannabinoids need the terpenes in order to fully act to their potential on a physiological level. We We know that terpenes have direct receptor action. We know that terpenes are working together with cannabinoids. We know that flavonoids are working together with cannabinoids and terpenes. We know that even the phytonutrients in the matrix are are influencing the overall medicinal potential of this organism. Once you isolate out a compound, let's say THC, and you produce a medicine, from it. That is following the allopathic model, and that will definitely give you a certain set of side effects. However, it will not compare to the medicinal potential of having the full range of constituents work together. It also may deliver you more uncomfortable or negative side effects, the isolate, as compared to the full spectrum where these other compounds are working in relationship with the THC or with uh, whatever the primary compound is, let's say, and helping to mitigate any of the more uncomfortable side effects. And so it is incredibly important. I think when we are looking to help people uh, manage, therapeutically manage their illness to make sure that there are at least a, a certain range, a certain full spectrum of 
compounds that are in optimal ratios in order to help um, alleviate these certain symptoms, whatever the user or the consumer is looking for. But it does it does take all parts of the whole. I would say. And there is absolutely value and also research that is coming out and that um, that we do that we are able to look to in terms of the power of the sun. You cannot replicate the full spectrum of the sun. You never will. Humans cannot. That's something we're like, again, in that desire to control, right, that we want to be able to replicate that in an indoor sterile environment. You can't. So the sun, one, helps to produce the secondary compounds. Also, secondary compounds are the plant's defense system. If the plant is living a very cushy, sterilized life indoor in a laboratory setting, it has no need to produce more secondary compounds than it would if it was planted in the ground among all of these other plants surrounding it around all of these other insects that are interacting with it, animals, etc. The plant has to fight for its survival. The plant even has to fight for its survival um, if it's in the same kind of bed as another cannabis plant right next to it. Again, if you're looking at a more sterilized lab environment where all the plants are kept separate in pots and fed specific nutrients optimized for like specific growth of these different structures, etc., it's it is it's really bougie. Like it does not need to protect itself whatsoever. Whereas outdoors, when you kind of let it do its own thing, that's when you see these spikes in minor cannabinoids as well as major terpenes, etc. And that again, is where I believe that the true medicinal value lies. Of course, the more shadow side of that is that it does require experimentation. It is going to be different every time, but that could help alleviate the the tolerance problem, right? Mm-hmm. Or it could help alleviate the problem of like, oh, this, this medicine is no longer working for me because it is a diverse range of compounds that is constantly cycling slightly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Completely, completely agree. Um, couple minor follow-up points to a couple of things that came up in there. Um, even if we could replicate the full spectrum of the sun, that would take an insane amount of energy and production and looking at something on a complete systemic level. Let's say you could do that. Why would you do that when yeah. the sun is already available for free? <laughs> like there are other costs to creating this phenomena. Um, even if you win the quote unquote game of the single thing you're looking to recreate on a uh, botany level, plants grown from seed have a taproot. Plants grown from clone do not have a taproot. That's the central main root that's going to penetrate deeper and further and allow it to pull in uh, a different amount of nutrients and be more stable in general. And just on the full spectrum part of that, a uh, big believer in that on the secondary medicines as well, i.e. Uh, fat infusions and like mechanical and, and full spectrum sort of situations as opposed to uh, distillates or some of the hydrocarbon extraction methods which are really good at cannabinoids but they don't pull everything um and so i just yeah encourage everyone to really lean into the full spectrum because we i've consumed isolates and single things and I, i i wouldn't recommend them Right on. Okay, so moving on, Emin, I wanted to to ask you a bunch of questions about um, what you guys, uh, about regeneration Mm -mm. and uh, a no-till living soil. Can you explain for our audience what Green Source Gardens means when it talks about regeneration uh, to to get started? Absolutely. Um, And I would say that is the, like, industry term I'm seeing gain a lot of traction lately through regenerative agriculture and... uh, People like the Emerald Cup and the Cultivation Classic now give out a regenerative farm award, which um, 
uh, I'm, I'm thankful for having uh, received your green test card and having received. Um, but what it really at its core tries to get to is that a natural system in balance creates abundance. It creates more than was there before. Um, that comes partly because of all this sunlight that's, you know, through the magic of photosynthesis creating more mass than used to be there through this thing we call a plant. Um, and so if you have something in perfect equilibrium and these plants are growing there from the natural sun and the energy already flowing throughout there, you have a system of abundance that you can skim from and not disrupt this system of abundance. And so um, if you have to put inputs into a system, it's not really regenerative. I mean, it, in like a math sense, you should have more outputs than inputs from a system for it to be regenerative. So Green Source Gardens that believes that you can only really have a regenerative system in full connection with the outdoors. So fully sun-grown, fully integrated with the outside. So even if, um, you know, circling to the, the living soil no-till component, that's, that's a really vital component of what regenerative agriculture is. There are a variety of people who do no-till living soil in greenhouse or indoor settings, and I think it's vastly preferable to the uh, the normal before that, which is just buying, uh, you know, soil and rebuying it every year or reamending it every year. It allows for root systems to establish, but in an indoor setting, the light is always going to be a, a high energy demand that's going to uh, disrupt any attempts to be regenerative. And you've got no mega fauna interaction. There are no birds. There are no deer. There are no animals that are a part of an ecosystem you don't have do you hear that indoor growers let some birds loose I was gonna say, like, <laughs> like like uh. inig- 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 like integrated pest management buying your bugs to bring in sure. that's yeah. an indication that it's not really regenerative system because you're having mm. to buy these inputs and even if you buy awesome organic inputs even if you wildcraft things consistently is it really regenerative? Like right now at Green Source, we do still buy organic hay for the animals and we do intercept uh, wood chip streams from um, tree companies that are shipping them and they would just not know what to do with them and toss them out. And right now we we've acquire them and use that as mulch. Um, and so we do have a little bit of mulch and animal feed acquisition happening right now, which isn't strictly speaking like zero input closed loop, but it's an important component of these wood chips are out there already being created. People are spending a ton of energy chipping wood chips and then just not knowing what to do with them and tossing them. So you might as well take those on. That's a really valuable resource for establishing fungal networks. And if you're a part of this broader system economically already, it's important for you to recognize that you are connected at this point. What I do driving around and packaging things for dispensaries, not regenerative. As soon as we acquire a little more financial stability, those are the sorts of things we want to tackle and it's um to function on a day-to-day you've got to recognize the areas you're not there and not beat yourself up too much about it and and just like know that those are there but but yeah regenerative is this 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 thing and you see dr bronner is starting to do um like a sun and soil, I think, certification is what he's starting to build up on a a broader regenerative for not just cannabis. And it's it's a recognition, once again, like what's around us needs healing. And so we need to 
um, create these systems of abundance because we've depleted everything so much now that it needs to regenerate back. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to do that, it needs to create more than we're taking from it. And so it, it's this the language speaks i think to the damaged nature of the system around us and that it has the capacity to heal itself mm. is really the core concept of it and it's very it involves all these other things we're talking about so and you are, get lost are in the regenerative weeds. regeneration and mm. permaculture sort of synonymous or what's the di- distinction there when exactly you, so and, and then can, and then can you take that answer sort of into mm. no-till living soil and the explanation and mm. and you know 100 so the exact there by the way was exactly to how confusing this is not exactly to those being equivalent so i would say um permaculture and living soil and no-till are all facets of a, like a regenerative style of agriculture mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. um and that makes so sense. like watershed management um carbon sequestration the polyculture like, all of these are are facets and they're really descriptions of people who look at nature and say what what is it that's happening? And so part of the issue in systems where economics are your primary driving factor is that, you know, your marketing team will see these things as being valuable and will the cool, like this is what we do. We are, we are living soil and we're awesome because of that. And that becomes your marketing thing. And I'm not like, like we do it too. This is why we keep changing up playing with language and like talking about ecologically integrated and it's, Versus it's uh, what the other, exactly what the other was, yeah. and and so that's the like when i'm doing like a vendor day situation like talking to like the layman and trying to get them to click in usually you something like regenerative permaculture is more accessible people understand that better if you start talking ecologically integrated it's a little bit looser but it's more true to form um so right it's these shouldn't be such abstract notions though just parenthetically like we should it shouldn't be this hard to grok for the just because you guys seem to be such a unicorn mm-hmm. is what i mean you yeah. know like oh i agree no it, it I, it's the thing it's right now we are um you know uh, in contrast to what is out there uh, an extreme but in our view like this is what happened naturally this is what's happened in time frame periods much much more than what we are used to um yeah and, that you're actually yeah. more natural than than the the majority of people yeah. who are operating in yeah. this way i think it's also hard when we see these terms as like now there's such marketing tools mm-hmm. where like everybody is trying to slap like the craft no-till living soil on their like label their website their social media and so that's where to me it gets so confusing because it's like Oh, okay. Well, if you are indoor and you're operating in organics and an organic model, but you're still in pots, you know, is is that a no-till model? Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that a living soil model? Like those, those types of things. I think to me, to to kind of um, give a perspective of why these terms can get so confusing, it's because so many of them have now been used as just marketing tools, mm-hmm. right? And, and kind of instruct of meaning. Yeah. yeah. But like once yeah. again, like I think it's important for people to have these tiers and directions and and places where they are now um, but recognize that you have evolution to go we have evolution to go we all have a lot of work to do to, to create the future that creates the most health and happiness for everybody um, and so like organics is better than not organics living soil is better than organics like there's a tier of like things mm. that are good but 
because it's such a tough market like you you get this place of fear and scarcity where like cool i'm here and i'm awesome and i'm an expert in this thing and like buy my stuff Mm -hmm. but it's really is bigger than that and i know that puts us at an extreme to say stuff like that but but we do genuinely believe that well i think the fact that you guys are continue to be as successful as you are you know is is a real credit to you i guess and is a credit to y'all's to y'all's mission and um and how good you are at it you know so congratulations yeah and and how it's it's always kind of just a, a humble pursuit to to be better i like that as well thank you i'm honored to be here all right, moving on. We wanted to ask you sort of about the state of Southern Oregon cannabis. You know, we were just sort of speaking about staying true to your sort of principles and your agricultural sort of beliefs and practices uh, in this incredibly um, challenging competitive market, oversaturated market. How has that like market volatility and the overproduction crisis affected you guys? And um, how do you think it's affecting the broader farming community? I mean, like we said, you guys seem to be, you know, at this point, like surviving is thriving, right? That's what we say. And uh, (laughs) you guys are are thriving, you know, but I mean, not everybody is. How talk to us about that. Something I'm super interested in, super concerned about. Absolutely. And um, essentially, this is been my life and is part of why I am at Green Source Gardens and there was an opportunity for me in the first place. So I started representing and doing sales stuff in January of last year. And Oof. that was a really rough time. To the, be, that was like the hardest time. It was a super rough time. So so previous to me, uh, Daniel, Nick's cousin, was managing the sales for them the first couple of years of REC. Um, they handled sales and stuff like that um, in a lot of the medical days. And that's where I met them as a bud tender. Right. Back at Bloomwell was actually them coming in and you know selling cannabis themselves. Um but Daniel got his own farm, and we were planning on, you know, maybe having a second green source gardens through Daniel and kind of going through that licensing process. And then the market essentially cratered. It's kind of um, like, have you guys seen The Wolf of Wall Street? When, yes. Leonardo, mm-hmm. when Leonardo DiCaprio starts his first day, the day of the 1987 Wall Street crash. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. That's very an excellent analogy, actually. Um, <laughs> right. So Horrifying. It was yeah. it was really interesting for me because I had essentially like my dream job. Like I I I was stoked to be at Green Source Gardens. I knew they never really hired. And I basically had perfect timing and reached out when I was um, unemployed uh, after my last job. Uh, some fun stuff in Puerto Rico and a hurricane hitting and some other stuff. Basically, let that startup fizzled a little bit and they had to regroup I'm a little sorry, bit. That's terrible. Oh, it it was. Um, I I feel bad for uh, my, my Joe. Shout out to Jody and. Abby, Whole Plant Tech. There's, they've rebooted and they're doing great work in Wisconsin, where they're from now, um, and doing some hemp stuff, um, dovetailing back with Daniel, doing hemp stuff on his farm right now, and that was the pivot he made away from getting a cannabis license in that time frame. But um, back to the central point of of what the markets meant. So I had this role to try to expand the network a little bit because up until that point, it was really easy more or less to sell cannabis for us in the first couple of years we didn't yeah, need, that was my experience too yeah we didn't need that many shops to flow through our relatively small harvest and so um 
in our mind frame of ecological over economic, like that's awesome. Like cool. Like the economics flow, we can focus on we can the, do both. the ecological. Mm-hmm. Right. And the first couple of years at the farm were really tough for Nick and Liz because they were taking over a new property after the medical days where they've been on the same piece of land for four or five years. And so we have an awesome new bigger property. It's eighty acres. It's mostly forest we don't touch. We're the last property before BLM land in the upper watershed. But where the cultivation happens was a horse pasture, um, serpentine rich, so bad mineral, very compacted. It needed a lot of uh, manure and mulch. Remediation. Um, remediation, yeah. yeah. So so the first couple of years were um, trying for them on the grow side, but things worked and they survived and everything flowed economically. And then the third year, things were just pumping. We were really happy with how this harvest came out. Like, I, I, I just kept hearing Nick and Liz remark, like, oh, my goodness. Like, everything is so much easier this year as far as the garden. And now we can't sell it. Now, all right. of a sudden, prices are a third, a quarter of what they were in a very short and time period. And nobody wants anything anyway. And nobody wants anything. Yeah. And then I'm... Um, you know, I have a background as a bud tender. I have a background as an intake manager. I know people in Oregon. I've lived here most of my you life. Kind of reverse engineer the sales process a and, little bit. And it was really tough for me still. Yeah. And it was an established farm yeah, with, quite. Um, uh, like, they do a, an awesome, amazing job of doing interviews and doing social media. And we now have our own podcast, Green Source Gardens Farmcast. And we cool. do a really good job for three people, essentially, in the core bit of the company of, of looking bigger than we are. And it was really, 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 really tough. So it's been stressful. It's been um, a year of... of tightening the belt and basically you know i'd say half of the cannabis i've sold this year has been trimmed in-house by nick liz or nick's brother claude now that we're by the way like an hour into the show can we tell people who nick and liz are (laughs) (laughs) no which is my fault no i'm a terrible terrible salesperson Uh, (laughs) so so it's nicholas mahmoud and elizabeth luca mahmoud um so they're they're married and they're the grower owners yeah, of owner green source gardens basically yeah. um and so um just to i guess back up a little bit um for the longest time the company was nick liz daniel doing sales um and then uh chad liz's dad was basically the accountant and he's come over business background and yeah. very family company so i i'm the interloper i'm the outsider right. who um has integrated himself into the farm and family and for that i'm you're like I'm the trim- ronnie wood you know uh, of the rolling stones who like came in in the 70s mm-hmm. and yeah 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 no i'm tremendous tremendous Tremendously appreciative of of that, and and um, you know Nick made a really big impact not just um, in the small windows where I saw him at Bloomwell, but at the first cultivation classic, he was on a um, like a living soil panel mm-hmm. um, with people like Jesse Dodd of BioVortex mm-hmm. and some other really cool, really articulate, passionate people in this regenerative living soil community. I have essentially spent my quote-unquote cannabis career uh, following information transparency. I'm, I'm a really, really big believer in radical transparency and in, in um, just from my own personal standpoint, like if I'm around somebody who's willing to share what they're doing, like I, I know I can learn from that and it's an indicator for me that they believe in what they're doing because you shouldn't have to hide anything if you really fully are living your values. And Nick seemed to be that for me and he seemed very humble and uh, in this panel he was talking about 
you know, he's a veggie grower background. He doesn't have as much cannabis cultivation experience as some of these other people. He's since now gained a lot of cannabis cultivation experience, but um, he just knew these basic life principles and he knew that this is how nature seemed to work and he had a confidence that this should be how it is. Um, and, and the cannabis is proving that um, just in the quality of it and there are people who are attracted to us who don't care about ecological components say there are people like certified dank of the pot snobs podcast who came to us just from having done emerald cup judging and golden tarp judging and looking for really good high quality cannabis and then discovered that the cannabis she resonated with seem to be grown in this style and and reverse engineering it that way so yeah so it's i mean it's been it's been a brutal 18 months it's it's been you know? it's, and like yeah. how are do you know like the people in yours in the southern oregon kind of cannabis community like the what's the broad the broad sense there if you can you, you may not know i'm sorry because we're all busy people you you know but like if you had to guess or do you know well it's interesting how it's going farmers tend to silo off and not always hang out as part of the hyper value of instagram for the farmers it allows you to stay connected while still on your farm totally. and so yeah. that's really valuable um and then doing events like the living soil symposiums and cultivation classics i love because it's just a bunch of farmers who aren't usually off the farm all hanging out together and like figuring it out um and so it's tough out there um it's it is the mood is not great and you can see it a lot in how um, people were portraying themselves on social media and just being really panicked and really like this is a you know you know buyers can't dictate prices we got to stand strong we got to da 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 and it's it's because so many people sunk all of their money and all of their family's money into this dream and it is something i resonate with strongly cuz i'm doing it i think this is awesome like there's a reason people sunk everything they had into this and to see it crumble and to see like especially if you're doing more resource intensive classical cultivation where you're paying for your power you're paying for your inputs like the math doesn't add up like you can't sell for under um what you put in to produce it and so we it we are it's fortunate it's not the right word but we we were positioned in a way where even when the market crashed we could still pay our mortgage. We could still pay our bills. We could still pay our employee. Like, we don't spend money. Um, we have the hay for the animals. And other than that, it's the mortgage bill for the farm that we're on. And other, like, like I would do this for free um, to to maintain this space in the market. I It is really important to me personally that this exists for people to see working because people won't do it unless they think it works and so this is a giant weird proof of concept and so most of the other growers that we resonate with most on cultivation practices don't have rec farms even like they're off the grid or they're kind of in the medical days still mm -hmm. and holding on in that weird way because it, it's 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 a it's a weird world out there and thankfully i know a bunch of different people who work at a bunch of different other cannabis companies and I, you know, had knew multiple other friends who had sales gigs for other cannabis companies the same time I got mine, and neither of them had their sales gigs in three months. Um, and the, the the classic numbers don't add up, and I uh, I see this stress sometimes with like Nick and Liz because they feel like it should work easier if this if this 
principles work the business should flow and there should be money for everything and all these principles should work and there is like it's fine it's scarce but it's working right now but, but the prices th- keep dropping but you know the, the thing like like it's been it's been way easier for me this january than last year by like um, same huge margins and i think part of that is just i personally am now not a new face in the inboxes. That that confluence of me being a new face, even for an old farm in inboxes, at the same time the market was crashing, was uh, it took a little bit longer, I think, than it might normally have to pick up traction. Um, but uh, a lot of dispensaries we were working with have finally figured out that they're going to make their lives easier by working with less farms and partnering a little bit deeper there and just basically shutting it down from taking on new farms. Um, and we've made the cut in some of those scenarios, which is great I, for us. By all farms too. Yeah, I also know that in that same vein, places I haven't gotten in yet have you know the the chances of me getting in there are much lower because they've done the same thing with the people they're working with currently. Right. So there is a little bit of this fear everyone has of. Okay, market shifting, which the market shifts for us like every six months, every year it seems like. You know, you can't stay um, with your plan. And so what what does that look like? Like, does everybody have to vertically integrate? Are we going to have to at some point find a chain that we resonate with to really start selling our cannabis? Like, we're very open to how this plays out as long as our core ecological principles are maintained. But we're not going to compromise on those. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's... Uh I think it was, it's either, it's, I don't forget who said it. It's either William Faulkner or Eugene O'Neill who said that the past is a, a nightmare from which I can't wake up. The um, 2017 to 2018 sort of late winter, early winter of that year uh, sales season that, that when the market crashed, I can't wake up from that. I still have like, I don't want to say it's PTSD because I feel like that sort of means PTSD. It's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people who really have it. But like, I, I've never gotten over that, that period of time uh, when everything, when the bottom dropped out and like we i thought my company was going to shut down you know what i mean like i think and i think a lot of people did mm-hmm. and and a lot did. and a lot of people <laughs> i was going to say like and a lot of, and a lot did and i think the southern oregon has been it seems to me to be have been hit the hardest um because of what you said like these are people that that have you know have been in lots of times like have a historical legacy of doing this and then maybe but perhaps maybe on the side then they went all in and then it fell apart Mm-hmm. Right. And that's just, you know, it's just something I, I, I bring it up because it's just something I want people to be mindful of out there. You know, um, not only, you know, especially for for um, for as new markets are coming uh, on nationally, but also for people here in Oregon to just be mindful of that, of what's, you know, just kind of what's going on and not necessarily to be just sort of. Um, I don't want to share the pain, you know, in a way. I don't mean to put pain on 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 consumers or whatever, but just for. Yeah, just ask ask questions about where your flower is from. Just ask ask your bud tender if you are a consumer, who grew it? Where is it coming from? If it's a small outdoor farm in Southern Oregon, I mean, you can almost guarantee that they're not making any money. And <laughs> and so um, if you if you truly want to kind of like vote with your dollar. If you want to support people who are um, who have kind of the core ecological principles that you align with in terms of organics, regenerative, whatever it may be, just ask where your flower came from. Yeah. I mean, you know, you when you when you said I would do this, I would do this for free just to, you know, whatever you said about that. You know, I think that's beautiful. But at the same time, I sat I when I heard you say it, I was like, well, I've got children. I can't. 
I can't do that for free, you mm-hmm. know? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people in, those, in the Southern Oregon farming community also have families, and it's like, this is, this is, you know, and not to, you know, totally respectfully of what you said, you know? I personally am in a weird niche because I have the advantage of, you know, I, you know, Nick and Liz feed me with food from the farm. I have... Um, slowly essentially moved into a one-bedroom cabin on the farm and don't pay rent anymore so my i personally have a life structure in the way where i i can do that a little right. bit more and i recognize that's not the reality for most people and you can't have a broad um movement built on the weird idiosyncrasies of one person's life and so totally recognize that yeah. And uh, just while we're talking about kind of economics in Southern Oregon, um, I'd like to touch on something I've heard Emma touch on before, which is just a lot of the pricing right now with cannabis is from this old model where you get rewarded for how expensive your cultivation methodology Mm. is, i.e. indoor is superior to outdoor. Um, And and there's two components. Part of that is that it's more expensive, so it should be more profitable. But there's also this certain aesthetic of bud that comes from indoor which is very frosty very triked up and it's this certain thing we've been trained to look for but when you look at like green source flower you're gonna see uh, like a lot more pistolate density um, which is like the colorful hairs you see on a cannabis bud and there's still like really good resin like you know test results or whatever and we all hate them and when i talk what do to you guys and, normally what are you what is your what are your average test results so, i'm totally I mean, curious I'm, I'm i'm most of my test results are over 20 percent at this point and mm-hmm. i've got stuff up to 26 yeah. percent and so like it's i've i've got right now from the 13 of the 19 cultivars we've gotten tested thusly this year. I think it's 17% to 26% is my range. Right. Um, we've got CBG present in every single one, which is something I've noticed for a while awesome. now, which is interesting. Right. I've heard a little bit of buzz about that potentially being correlated to regenerative styles of cultivation. What but is, Emma, can you jump in and tell me yeah, what CBG, CBG is? Yeah, CBG is the stem cell cannabinoid. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the first cannabinoid that the plant makes, uh, and it can and does differentiate into CBD, THC, and CBC, rarely CBC at high concentrations but uh it it is the precursor to thc and cbd and when you look at like mm, the literature trying to speak to why it matters from a consumption standpoint it usually mentions things like neurogenesis and bone growth stimulate and like it seems to be a weirdly more flexible compound but i'm so like reticent to be too definitive about that because yeah yeah it it has a lot of potential it seems also in the uh, therapeutic management of digestive disorders Mm -hmm. like ibs and crohn's it helps to relax the smooth Mm -hmm. muscle then understudied it and then we do pay as of yet and then we do pay for terpene tests for everything Thing. And so I've noticed a range from like 1.8% to 6.7% so yeah. far this year. Damn, yeah. I mean, that's um, awesome. 6.7% is beautiful. Yeah, and yeah, it makes total sun, sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, for the plant, the terpene is a uh, allostatic response to its environment. Like you, you, these compounds are for the plant a, a part of existing in this ebb and flow with the environment. And so... Um, like you said about like kind of the babied indoor thing, like you, it doesn't need to produce that. It's being pumped more nutrients than it can actually handle. Right. So it's like it's like trying to figure out how to handle all these nutrients and putting all these roots and um, it's just a different thing going on. Um, well, I would say like the you know the the organizing principle of this show in its inception was to for M and I to battle this idea that potency 
equated to value Mm -hmm. as opposed to taking a more sort of holistic look at the end product and 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 really you know determining value using sort of a a matrix rather than just this one thing you know having some close to seven percent terpenes is no small feat Mm -hmm. you know um even if your product tests at 18 percent as a result because there's only so much surface area for it all to, right. to well, be it, in. Right? It's really I funny. Mean, that's how it works, folks. It's a, it's pie, a pie chart. chart. <laughs> but, but the weird part about that is, like, the, the strain that tested at 6.77 terpene, the Coyote Art, was also a 26% THC. Um, wow. So it was awesome. a weird one. Not to, like, once again, like, do I think that strain is better than Pinkleberry, which tested at, you know, 17% THC, and I think it was, like, 2.5% terpenes? Eh, it's just different. Um, right. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I smoke the Pinkleberry, I'm very affected um, in a very, like, cerebral, um, uplifting sort of way, and, like, would I give it to, like, a necessarily I'm looking for, like, a light effect? No, yeah, I don't know. Like, um, it's... It's interesting. It doesn't mean nothing, but it's very gray and very nuanced. And, um, like, we've been talking internally, like, do we even like our highest terpene testing cultivars better than, like, the 2% testing terpene mm-hmm. cultivars? Some of our favorite ones are the 2%ers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we, I mean, is it monoterpene? Is, is that because of their specific terpene profile? Like, you know, you guys tend to want... I don't know what Mercine and I don't you know whatever dominant. I mean we're we're, we're looking at them. We we think there may be some potential correlation between uh, sesquiterpene versus monoterpene, which mm. sesquiterpene I believe is the more robust, stable uh, terpene compound, and monoterpene is the more volatile co- uh, class okay. of compounds. So things like uh, limonene and mercine um, are and pinene are all monoterpenes. Things like beta caryophylline and humulene and guile um, mm. are sesquiterpenes. Um, but even within that. Uh, when you go to different labs, they test for different terpenes. So I just had some R&D terp tests come back from a company who um, was squishing some stuff for some rosin to see how that turned out. And the most uh, prevalent terpene was ferrincine, which my other labs don't even test for, and it was above mercine. I, no, I've never heard of it. Never that. heard of it. It's apparently yeah. the class of sesquiterpenes. Um, mm-hmm. There's an alpha ferrincine and a beta ferrincine, and alpha is associated with, like, apple skin, and beta is, like, potato. Okay. Um, but, like... Once again, like I, it, it was above mercy. It was the number one in two different strains. Um, and so I was like, okay, like cool to know. I don't know what it means. And so it's, it's, I'm privileged to have access to all of this information. Yeah, I want to caution people. Like I'm seeing people moving from the cannabinoid fixation, which is still very much a thing, to a terpene fixation. And it's like a raw terps. You want terps, isolate the terps and spin it back into terps and terps. I don't think I don't think that's right either. Like I I, I, love, I love this guy. Oh my god! Like, like I, uh, I talk to my friends who are like you know more hardcore dabbers than I, and I've had my daily instances with dabs as well. But um, if you have too much terp, you will start coughing blood because it's a volatile solvent. Right? Like, too yeah, many terps are bad for you. It's not good. It is not. There is there is research to point to the fact that if you dab terpenes, they can turn into benzene, which mm-hmm. are carcinogenic compounds. And it is important to note that like while it is fun, like you said, to have this data, and while it's important to expand consumer consciousness to understand that there's way more ways to evaluate quality than just the aesthetics and THC percentage, this is still 
still personalized. We still cannot draw all of this data into an allopathic model because of the overarching theory of the ensemble effect, because of our unique endocannabinoid receptor system, because of the constantly fluctuating physiological states mm -hmm. that we are all constantly in, right? And so it's still important to be cognizant of that. 100%. And so I'm, I'm here to defend flower consumption and like THC is a thing because a lot of times people in this vein like I know people in the concentrate community who think the safest way we should only ever consume cannabis is through vaporizing of concentrates and we shouldn't smoke flour and lipids are bad and I see the science they're pointing to I've read the scientific journals I've done the deep dives in a previous life I have a google sheet full of primary sources I've pulled from other lab things so I could have these arguments with people and have sources to cite and so I get it all I know is that I'm smoking a more joints than I've ever smoked and I'm definitely the healthiest I've ever been and my lungs are fine so I I know that we've been cautioned against anecdotal evidence and 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 placing our own personal experience above all of these um, scientific studies and I question that because I have experienced this and so I I, I just invite people to go out and experience and trust their experience a little bit more. And I think a lot of people in, in, in our generation, my generation, I'm 28, have started to question the expert opinion model um, in a lot of different things. And that, you know, we can't trust ourselves. We have to trust these experts who have been highly educated in all these different ways and they know things you don't know. And I just don't see the future in that model. All right, so that's going to bring us to our final question. Absolutely. Jesse, um, I think you saw this coming. Uh, <laughs> how do you define quality cannabis? So for me, quality cannabis is almost exclusively about the cultivation methodology. And so um, if I were going into a dispensary to purchase things, I'm asking questions about the farms because I have seen that cannabis is a product of its environment. And so I want to know what that environment was um so so for me the test results are essentially irrelevant like terpene and cannabinoid there are visual cues i can kind of look for because i've been around a lot of cannabis right. i can kind of see what looks healthier to me um uh, the, i think there is something between uh, about like having the healthy pistols there because that has to do with like the sexual receptivity of the plant and i think there's something um, in nature about if something is expressing itself sexually it's like the final layer of health for an organism that is like cool like I'm, I'm super healthy like I'm ready to make more of me um, <laughs> so that's a component there I like that yeah um, like that. and it's Friday um, night I'm ready to go and the, 100% and, and so like there are a bunch of certifications you can look at there's clean green there is certified kind there's dragonfly earth medicine pure certification uh, the regenerative farm awards all of these things are potentially useful but ultimately uh, discernment is more than that investigate your farms Instagram can be a valuable tool for that your bud tenders are really important good bud tenders are near and dear to my heart because that's how I got into all of this and if I'm looking at a dispensary finding bud tenders that are still passionate included includes me into a dispensary having figured out how to run this system um, because I see a lot of really good bud tenders get burnt out by poorly managed dispensaries yeah mm -hmm. indeed all right well mm -hmm. listen Jesse Long 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This was great. I thought this was great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having um, me. I'm sure yeah. I went a little rambly here and there. But I, it was great. I yeah. thought this was a really, Chock full. really, really uh, instructive conversation. Thank you again. Uh, you are listening to This is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, and we will be right back. This is Cannabis is brought to you by the Open Cannabis Project. The Open Cannabis Project is an independent nonprofit whose mission is to build a transparent and open source platform of cannabis data. Thanks to nearly 80 years of prohibition, cannabis is suffering from a bad case of both misinformation and missing information. The Open Cannabis Project is on a mission to fill this information gap, creating a public records database that can help bring fairness and transparency to everything from intellectual property disputes to lab result issues. Learn how you can donate your anonymized chemical data and help fill the information gap at opencannabisproject.org. Thank you for staying with us. You are listening to This is Cannabis on X-Ray FM, the show that takes an insider look at the Oregon cannabis scene. My name is Lee Henderson, co-founder of Portland Craft Cannabis Company, Hi-Fi Farms. And with me is Emma Chasen, the founder of Eminent Consulting. That was a great conversation. That was. That was really like chock full of a ton of information. Yeah. Really, really interesting look at, you know, I mean, if there are, there are obviously like just kind of like two models of cannabis production as it stands, indoor and outdoor, and then there's many, many sub, you know, uh, different ways of doing it from there. But mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a really great look at the one of the models. You yes, know? absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, just the, just the, how much they lean into their model, how much they believe in their model, how it is so mission driven, um, and, and really their commitment to it is inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, I hate to, I hate to say hardcore cause that sounds, you know, hardcore. That, it's not, yeah, that's not what I mean, but it's really like really just deeply principled yes. and firmly Committed. held. Yeah. I mean, firmly held beliefs. Um, something that's really, I find something very, uh, I would say inspiring and, um, you, something you definitely don't see every day no, in, yeah. in, in any walk of life right. regarding anything, especially regarding like a, you know, a capitalist enterprise. Yep. Okay. Now is the time when we make recommendations. Cool. I have a quick one. Okay. Uh, I have a quick one too. Cool. Uh, new show on Netflix okay. hosted by Will Smith. Okay. Is he in blue face? <laughs> no, but that is terrifying. <laughs> His pictures of the genie or whatever. Ooh. Wow. That is, yeah, that is some CGI crazy, mm. but this is a, about uh it's like it's it's a look at the earth and it's from like astronaut perspective kind Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. um it's kind of like a like a planet earth like a nature show but it's it's really well done aronofsky does it and i actually aronofsky yeah of pie and requiem for a dream and and black swan yeah Yeah. Um, okay yeah and it's it's beautiful it's really beautiful you get a lot of these like shots from earth from like the international space station and and it talks i mean it's it's actually quite in line with our episode because it talks about how like earth is such an ecosystem in and of itself how like things in other parts of the world make so that other processes and other parts of the world can happen right. and right and the how butterfly effect exactly or how everything's interconnected yeah. um yeah it's it's well done i like it interesting aronofsky does it yeah. like you know like have you ever seen you know the movie pie yeah like, which was i mean like i i watched that recently blew my mind oh my, when i saw it, it like is. 15 years ago probably now yeah, 20 maybe even wild aronofsky is 
wild. Wild, yeah. yeah. I don't care for some of his movies. Uh, I really love Pie, and like I don't know if you can really say like you, I loved Requiem for a Dream because it's not a feel good movie whatsoever. No. But but I thought it's it was a really still great good movie. and impactful and visceral. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't crazy about the wrestler, but anyway, go ahead. Um, uh, <laughs> you go ahead. But, but I do. <clears throat> but knowing that he's working on that show is, makes makes me definitely want to watch. Yeah, it. it's good. It's good. Recommended. Wow. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, I have a very quick recommendation too. Um, it's a local business called Mudra. Uh, it is a massage, uh, Mudra massage. It's uh, in Hollywood, and they do something called Ashiatsu massage. And if you've never tried it out, I, you know they're not a sponsor or anything. But um, I recently hurt my back, and uh, they really took care of me. And uh, a place is really, really cool. If you're looking for, if you're it's not it's not inexpensive, so I will say if you have um, a little if you want to treat yourself and you're also not feeling well, um, they do a really really excellent deep tissue, tissue massage that um, really really helped me because I just hurt my back pretty badly. Um, so Mudra Massage in Hollywood, shout out to them. All right, that does it for this week's This Is Cannabis. Please remember to email questions and comments to thisiscannabis at xray.fm. Also, please be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at thisiscanna on xray. This Is Cannabis is engineered by Will Romy, and our theme music is the song Impossible OK by Portland artist Motric. Please be sure to check them out on Spotify. Wubba, wubba, wubba. Good night and good luck, and thanks so much for listening. Thank you.